This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Frontline Gaming presents 40K Stat Center with your hosts, Val Heffelfinger and the Falcon. The Stat Center staff made waves at the Capital City Bloodbath. We bring all the best from Texas as we cover War Games Gone. St. Louis came under siege in Siege World 2019, and Steven Seagal was nowhere to be seen. We discover what makes Mark Perry a being made of pure energy at Warzone Gigabytes 3. And we explore who brought down the hammer at the Hammer of Wrath GT. And finally, we seek words of wisdom from the winner of the London Open. And we're back, folks. Sleep deprivation and technical issues aside, I think it's safe to say that the party was on Friar last weekend at the Capital City Bloodbath. It was. It was such an awesome experience. Thank you guys so much for being patient with us uh, with all the technical issues we've had this week, plus the uh, just trying to catch up on all the sleep uh, that we didn't get while we were in the beautiful Ottawa, Canada. I don't know why, but that was the hardest part of my weekend was trying to say Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. It just makes my brain cramp. And uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone was low on sleep, it was yourself. You had a Herculean uh, effort made to get out to Ottawa. I mean, yeah, it was uh, about a 17-hour trip for me uh, that I started at uh, 3 p.m. the previous day on uh, the Thursday to get in Friday morning at uh, 7 a.m., uh, but you know what? It was all worth it. I had an absolute blast. I couldn't ask for anything more um, than we got. Like than we got from the hosts, uh, Darren and the Canhammer team were just super excellent. Uh, Logan, the judges, everybody helped out so much, and the guys from the Honest War Gamer. Like I cannot say enough about just all the the things uh, that uh, they did for us and that we did together. Um, the only negative was uh, having to put up with Rob constantly trying to tell some kind of Intawa Outawa joke, yep. and it just it just wouldn't work. Also, the other terrible thing was uh, Rob literally putting himself in the hospital. Yes, I, I mean uh, that's minor compared to the terrible dad jokes he kept throwing out. But yes, uh, if in case you weren't aware, uh, Rob from the Honest War Gamer uh, did in fact somehow manage to over uh, overexert himself to the point uh, where his heart stopped working properly. He uh, went into uh, AFib. They had to take him to the hospital, get him defibrillated uh, to get his heart back to normal rate. Yep, it was a terrible scene. He blamed it on MSG the entire time. I, I think I think it's just he his ticker couldn't handle that Tim Hortons coffee. That's all I think. Uh, he really did pound back a lot of that too. He drank um, like he he drank he drank a, a a few liters of it. I am sure. Yeah, and he, I mean, it, what would have happened if uh, Max Dubois hadn't literally eaten all of our Timbits? Think about that. Would have been there would have been a, a diabetic element involved as well. Um, for all of those people out there who somehow haven't heard us hype this event up over the. Basically, the course of the entire show, we've been talking about doing what we did last week. Uh, check it out on YouTube, The Honest Wargamer. Also available on Twitch, The Honest Wargamer. Also available on Facebook, under The Honest Wargamer. All of that content and more. You can hear Rob's incredibly advanced opinions about 40K. 
week in and week out. He's also a big AOS content provider. That's really his bag. That's his, his true love is uh, Age of Sigmar. And he's down in Nashville right now where they don't have health care. So this is flying without a net. Uh, yeah. do, doing coverage of a, of a cool little GT for, for AOS. So I hope that everything goes well for him there. For sure. And I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, shout out uh, John Scrivens, who has the best mom jeans in the business. What a guy. You know, leave it to a guy from England to really bring the Empire waste back, you know? Yep. He he does a number. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, anything uh, for you that really stands out about your experience shoutcasting? Everything about it was awesome. Just getting to, to talk to the players, uh, to witness the strategy at the level that I was able to, uh, that, I mean, I always get excited when I can, when I can take part. Um, and it, with that much intricacy, uh, the fact that we had a really good table boss in Max Dubois, who was feeding me excellent content, uh, game to game. So I wasn't just relying on a top town view. Um, it was about as good as I think I've ever had it in trying to figure out what was happening in someone else's Warhammer game. Absolutely. And uh, on my side of things, just wandering around trying to keep my foot out of my mouth, I think it went pretty well. I got to be the uh, the the roaming field correspondent. Previously has been uh, the role played by Tom Layton, also a 40K Stat Center correspondent. It was a lot of fun. I got to interview a lot of players, got to interrupt games just as they were reaching climactic moments. And I mean, you also uh, were very well loved by the Twitch uh, ch community. Uh, they were constantly asking for you, for you to remove more buttons from your shirt. Um, there were questions about where you purchased your clothes. Um, you really were the Fabio of the event in, in uh, most people's eyes. You know, uh, as far as Warhammer is concerned, I, I guess that, that in that context, I might qualify as a Fabio. Uh, any other one, I don't, I don't think so. Also, two button limit and uh, answer your question, J Crew. Everybody, those were uh, J Crew outlet. Um, not too bad from when I went down to San Diego. <laughs> anyway, um, we've got a massively stacked show here because obviously uh, last week we, well, I guess the week before last, we had skipped the weekend's coverage so that we could really dedicate our time to the uh, ETC. So we've got a little bit of a backlog to get through. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, we've got about six events here that we're going to cover. Uh, the Capital City Bloodbath from this week, as well as War Games Con, two big majors that happened. Uh, luckily, we were at one of them, so very easy for us to provide you the best coverage that we can on that. We also have about four other uh, events that took place the week prior. Uh, that we're going to that we had clips from that we want to get done because we want to give as many people their time in the sun as we can. So Peter and I have been talking about it, guys, and we're probably going to have to put a cap on about four events per episode, so that way we can actually give them their their dues and also ensure that old half and the old falcon don't go insane trying to do this show for a long period of time. So we're going to cap things at four or all of the majors. So if there's a weekend where there's more than four majors, we're still going to cover them all. Uh, however, that means that in some weeks, such as this one, GTs will get bumped, uh, and we'll uh, we'll definitely shout out winners and things like that, and make sure that everyone uh, gets their name said. But unfortunately, I don't think everyone's going to get the full stat center treatment going forward. Although, ironically, uh, next week things slow down, don't they? Yeah. So in uh, that kind of lull week prior to Nova. Uh, we really don't have a whole lot going on. EastCon is going to be happening in Australia, so we'll be providing you coverage from that major. And there's a second possible GT 
um, that's kind of on the cusp right now. Um, if that gets if that hits uh, GT status, then we'll definitely provide you coverage from that, the Capital City Clash. Otherwise, I believe we're going to put together a stats episode for all you uh, lunatics out there since we've the basically the number one complaint we ever get is that we don't put enough stats episode as n- enough stats in the stats center podcast well really only one person complains about that but he did just happen to put us on his really good honest wargamer show so <laughs> it's very true yeah so he'll get all the stats he could ever crave and to be honest with you though he does a really good job just one of the shows in his lineup uh, deals with tournament stats from Age of Sigmar, also driven by some weirdo from the west of Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Is that, You're correct. Yeah. Pretty cool. And you know what else is cool? Nova. Yes. You agree with that? I'm glad, because I'm going. I'm just I'm throwing caution in the wind. I'm going. I've used an international consortium of players to help develop me a meme list which should guarantee I have lots of time to wander around and talk to actually good players. So that should be good for the coverage. Yeah, it's quite excellent. I mean, I like to be included amongst that uh, that international list, as it was I that recommended you talk to someone better than myself in developing that list, especially after I saw that your first few attempts, because they were... Look, they weren't that different, okay? There's they're, only they're so bad. much room in this list for other choices once you've made that one choice. So look, all right? Granted, the list I've got now is an actual good list. No, it's not. It's going to be fun, though. We'll reveal it, maybe, on the next show, which is going to be in, like, 10 minutes from now. Because uh, we <laughs> took sure. so long to publish this one. Anything you want to plug before we get going here, Falcon? I mean, I, will, I always want to plug the normal stuff, Frontline Gaming. Uh, the Frontline Gaming Network has just added yet another podcast to its, uh, its library, The Art of War, with Nick Nanavati and some other guy. Yes. Um, it's it's uh, the first episode's quite the humdinger. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. They've got uh, Frankie GM Papa on talking about his very unique Gene Steeler cult list. It's a very in-depth coverage uh, from top table players is their plan. Really excited to see where they go from here and always uh, welcome having any other brothers and sisters uh, on the network with us. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, the, uh, the The co-host there, um, came all the way up to TGX and actually was chatting with me about this idea, and I thought he was crazy and making it up that Nick Nanavati wanted to start a podcast. Turns out he wasn't, and it's actually really solid content. They actually released both episodes, um, so they basically go in-depth on a particular list or army build. They're talking to Frankie about his GSC, and then there's a second episode where they get into the real nitty-gritty of how to pilot it on the tabletop, so it's... Uh, it's a really cool concept. I think at some point the second episode will be going behind a paywall. But uh, in the early goings, I think while they sort out some of their issues, it'll be free to everyone to enjoy and learn from. Yeah, so take a listen if you haven't already. It's it's really, really good stuff. And hey, we still got our friend Pablo over at Chapter Tactics. He's running his Patreon. What's he giving away this this month? Do we know? I have no idea. Um... I think he's painting something. It's like a, it's like a, a character miniature. Yeah, well, I don't think he's painted. He he has threatened to paint it, uh, okay. but I believe he's actually going to get the paint studio to to paint a one or two. Uh, uh, he says Space Marine, but I believe it'll be any character uh, choice, uh, any character of your choice. He'll uh, paint it up for you, get it painted for you, and uh, send it your way. And um, they did just announce uh, that uh, we have a new co-host on Chapter Tactics. Oh yeah. Uh, 
Ridvin the Archon Scari Martinez has joined our team as uh, yet another co-host um, to go along with Sean, myself, and Val. So now we've got, you know, once again, we're back up to to the big old four best boobas and Pablo handling handing out some some lovely content for you guys on whatever random thing Pablo wants to talk in week to week. And he's I know that he's actually searching to just, you know, basically make every member of the community a podcast host on Chapter Tactics by the sounds of things. So good on you, Pablo. Keep up the good work. Dare to dream. Maybe he can Dare. maybe he can bring everyone together under one chapter taxi and umbrella. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, one thing I had a, had a listener before we, we kick off the tournament coverage, I had a listener reach out from Portugal. It's a, a member in the service uh, with, with the U.S. station in Lisbon, I think, at their, uh, at their embassy there. Uh, his name is Tito, and he wanted to, to have the Batalha de Corvos 2019, November 16th and 17th in Lisbon plugged on the show. Also, his son Joshua, big fan, wanted to say... Uh, good luck at the RTT. I think they're uh, they're doing a little warm up RTT coming up soon for this. So Portugal apparently never had a GT or reached GT status, so it would be a big deal if they actually got the numbers to do it. We already know just north of there, Spain's doing a 400 person event. So Portugal get a little region regional uh, competition going on here, maybe. Yeah, get on that, boys. Get on that. I'm pretty excited. Oh, the Warhammer world is just exploding. Uh, I received an email last week from South Africa about uh, their vet- their 10th annual Veterans GT they held. They're looking at running a, a second one, possibly going for major status. So much good uh, quality gaming going out there worldwide. Uh, it's just, I just love this game sometimes. It's pretty neat, and so is podcasting, but most importantly, so is Keith and this bump. Tournament news is made possible by bestcoastpairings.com. Download the BCP TO app to organize events for just about any tabletop game system. Download the player app to easily find and participate in events from around the world. Around the world. Subscribe to BCP for as little as $5 a month to support the team and unlock additional features available for iOS and Android. Bestcoastpairings.com. Competitive events easier ottawa ontario canada capital hills and thrills as far as the eye can see wandering through the streets you might bump into one justin trudeau you could even run into darren from canhammer or the captain of team canada christopher haynes because this is their stomping grounds folks and this is their home tournament the capital city bloodbath 2019 covered in Technicolor by yours truly and Peter the Falcon, as well as Rob Symes from the Honest War Gamer and his trusty sidekick, and probably completely equal partner in this, John Scrivens. That's right, and uh, Capital City Bloodbass this year did manage to hit a wonderful 118 out of a possible 120 players. Took part in the EY Center, just two kilometers, that's uh, just over one mile for you Americans. Uh, away from the Ottawa International Airport. It was an easy one or two kilometers, I must say, because as I arrived on the Friday, I just took an easy stroll over to the EY Center, uh, watching it rise from the distance like the Emerald City. This is the venue that you've been dreaming of when you're going to a, a major or GT. But why tell you about it when we can have dear friend Logan introduce the 
tournament, as well as maybe talk a little bit about the history of the Capital City Bloodbath. We had a couple of interesting years. So we started off, uh, I was sort of tangentially part of it for, for year one. We started off as a Warhammer Fantasy GT, and we had about 40 players. Uh, and then Age of Sigmar happened about six weeks later, so that was, that was a good time. Uh, and then uh, we decided to move over to 40K for the next year and, and Age of Sigmar. Um, Age of Sigmar that year got eight players. Uh, 40K got, uh, I think we were in 30-ish or so. So the, as you said, the event didn't really grow. Uh, and I think that was just sort of growing pains. A uh, year after that, we had a significant uptick in 40K. I think we had uh, 58, 59 players. Uh, but AOS was still in its infancy. So that was when we were trying to figure out balancing with wounds, stuff like that. Uh, but 40K started to take off. Um, and then it's just sort of grown from there. So we had two or three rocky years. Uh, it's usually just addition changes that really bite us. Uh, but definitely over the past three years, it's just exploded. And on the Can Hammer side, Darren's done a fantastic job hyping it up. I mean, he is the social media master as far as we're concerned. Yeah, so it's, it's been growing really well. We're really happy with it. Uh, like I said earlier, that's what keeps me coming back to this. It's a, it's a really fun event to run. And at this point, we've got it not down to a science necessarily, but we, we like to think we have a decent idea what we're doing with it. Now, as Val mentioned, the EY Center and uh, Capital City Bloodbath in general is just an amazing venue and event. Um, it's been going on for years now. Uh, the EY Center itself has fully carpeted floors, six feet uh, between each table. They provide fully catered lunches and an extremely they and Canhammer itself has an extremely detailed collection of terrain. Um, it really is a wargaming paradise. We caught up with uh, Darren. Where else are you getting brioche? Say who was extraordinarily excited to add his two cents about the event. Um, I think we have a good reputation of being a really friendly tournament to play at, and I just hope everybody really just enjoys their six games. And uh, I personally am super excited about this, the stream. Uh, we've invested a lot to bring Rob and everyone over to provide the best coverage we can, and I think by the looks of it, it's going amazing, and uh, so I'm super excited about that as well. I just want uh, everybody to check us out, and we'll be here next year again. So if you couldn't make it this year, come on back next year. Uh, so I also uh, do most of the media for Can Hammer. We got YouTube. We have Twitch live streams every week. We run a podcast. So check us out, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, slash Can Hammer. All of that is well and good, but of course you guys want to know what actually happened. And going into round six of this six-round tournament, we had four undefeated players in the mix. Of course, it was Eric Marco versus Jim Vessel on the top table, but right at their heels was the infamous Diego Pita versus Eric Trock with his Mono Custodes build, and we're going to definitely be hearing about him later. Eric Marco was playing an Imperium list heavy on the Knights. Why don't we kick it over to him with a little explanation of what he brought. Yeah, uh, I was running Knights, so basically three Crash Crusaders with a Loyal 32, two Basilisk, six Mortar, and an Assassin. So, did pretty well. I've got some good matchups. Not actually a list that normally should be doing that well. It, I got good pairings because it loses, it loses to a lot of top teams, well, not like top army like Orcs. It loses to Tau, it loses to Planes, it loses to Demons, it loses to GSC. But I, on some weird luck, I managed to avoid all of those except Jim Vestal on top table last round. And that's Eric Marco for you. What a humble, humble man talking about how garbage a list uh, that he brought to a major. A list that uh, he brought, as I believe, to ETC, uh, in which he did extraordinarily well. At one point, even killing 280-some-odd plague bearers, as I was constantly reminded in the preparation for his match against Jim Vessel. 
Um, the Triple Crusader list that Marco brought, pretty exciting to look at uh, and pretty standard fare these days. He had three Housecraft Crusaders, three, uh, two heavy weapon squads, two Basilisks, three infantry squads, and two company commanders, all to learn, along with a uh, operative uh, requisition sanctioned assassin of Pokeball of his choice. Um, it's a pretty standard list, but very good. It has been performing very well. Um, but like Eric says, it does have a, a number of pretty terrible matchups, and a lot of people do tech for this kind of thing. Um, that being said, let's get it to, to Eric for a couple talks, for a little bit of talk about uh, his favorite matches of the week. I actually had a lot of really interesting game. Like my third one was really back and forth. With uh, my opponent was running Guardsman and the Castellan and Smash Cap, so he went first and didn't do the, the damage he thought he would be doing. But my killer just basically steal all his CPs. It's been back and forth up until like turn five, where I pulled everything. Well, I pulled a win. Then I ended up this morning against uh, Josh Dett, so that's actually a tough matchup. Went first, gave me the win, and that, it still was a little bit back and forth, but went my way pretty quickly. And then against Ridvins, like the first three turns were pretty back and forth, but I went first again, so I've been lucky on where I'm going first, which basically gives it to me. But it was those three were really tough matches where still got able to, I've still been able to pull it out. Now, of course, Eric is a team member of mine from the faded 2018 version of Team Canada and one of my favorite people in Warhammer, so I was definitely playing a little bit of favoritism when I was doing my tournament coverage throughout the weekend, and I was checking up on his tables quite a bit. Also, he was downright one of the best players in the field, as he showed by getting to the top table. Um, however, in that one game that he was describing there, where he was up against the Castellan uh, essentially the Castellan guard list uh, with very little differentiation. It had, you know, two smash cannons, captains and Mephiston. Every time I came to the table, I expected to see none of his knights left. And deep into the game, uh, he had two and managed to kill Mephiston in Overwatch as it charged at him. And uh, the first smash captain that got in against one of his knights completely whiffed. It was uh, a miracle for him to get out of that one. <laughs> And uh, he did it uh, with a plum. And of course, uh, after getting through uh, tough matchup after tough matchup with this terrible list that he was describing, he got to the top table versus Jim. And it was maybe a little bit on the anticlimactic side for such an amazing tournament, but let's hear what he had to say about it. And against Jim, well, he went first. I couldn't seize. <laughs> I could. <laughs> he was getting stuff, and I just tried something, didn't work, so yeah, ended up like that, losing. He rolled good saves, good stuff, but he's got a good army, and he played it well. He played the odds. He took some chances and went his way, which is, okay, that's how you play. Like, you gotta, sometimes you got to play the odds. You got to take chances. He knew exactly what he had to do. He knew that those, well, those odds he were playing on, he needed to do it, otherwise he might be in trouble, and it went, it went his way, so that's, that's how it works. That's how you play high-level 40k, actually. Well, it sure did sound like a tough matchup to talk about for roughly two and a half hours, uh, Falcon, so coming into that, you knew, Rob knew, probably the players had a good sense that essentially after that first turn roll, a lot would be decided. So what are you thinking as a shoutcaster trying to cover that? Well, the first thing I'm thinking is this is going to be a really quick game. Um, suffice to say, Jim's list versus Eric's list, it, a lot of it can come down to that first round of play. 
Um, Eric wants to be as aggressive as he can generally because uh, the Knights need to get up in Jim's face to kill as many plague bears as they can uh, through stomps and through shooting. Um, but on the other hand, Jim's got that massive corn demon prince hanging out in the back uh, that can take out one, even two knights in a turn if he rolls hot. Um, so when that when uh, Jim rolls that, uh, that uh, first turn roll uh, and Eric is unable to seize, um, it becomes a very interesting game. A lot of it comes down to how much damage can Jim do in his first psychic phase to the knights, which was quite a, a bit. I believe he did 12 mortal wounds uh, before the knights even got out of their deployment zone. And uh, when Eric uh, pushed himself forward, he was only able to kill, I believe, eight of the plague bearers in shooting and then another six in close combat. Um, so really, almost all of his damage was due. Eric really needed to kill an entire Plague Bear squad in that first round in order to really make any kind of game of it. Um, one thing I'm not sure if Jim brings up in his in his clips is that Jim actually chose to only deploy one of his uh, Plague Bear squads in this game. He, he took a big chance there that he would be able to live through. Um, he also tried to spend as little CP as possible, so he didn't take the uh, Forbidden Gem, which is often something that you'll see uh, anybody with any slash models take against knights, because you can shut down off a knight for a full uh, phase, which is huge. Um, he didn't uh, give his Plague Bearers a 4-plus invulnerable save, all because um, he was really worried about CP usage, that Kalidus Assassin, if it makes him spend even one or two more CP than he planned. Um, his whole like turn three, turn four, turn five are ruined. Um, so it was very cagey play on Jim's part. He played it perfectly well, and then the dice gods, you know, happened to uh, fall his way like more than adequately. Um, and really, after that first round of combat, uh, sorry, the second round, when Jim killed two of the knights, mm. it was all over but the crying. So Rob and I did our best. We covered about another round of play. We took a look at uh, how the other top table was doing, and then we decided to just call it there. Um, as we noted earlier, Rob wasn't feeling very well, uh, which we would later turn out to him needing to be hospitalized. So it actually kind of played better for us that uh, we got through that game a little quicker than uh, than we normally would have. Yeah, I remember looking over at, at you guys and be like, what? Turn off the stream. Are you sure? And then I looked at Rob and I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. So Yeah, was, no, about, I would about halfway through the first round, he had to actually get up and leave, and that's when I knew something was up. So um, kudos to it. Like, just I can't say enough about Rob and like, his constitution for sticking it out, But uh, and I'm really happy that he's okay. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about it in the sense if he wasn't. So so that's how the, the tournament ended. So we kind of got to the end really quickly. However, we do have a couple other things we'd like to talk about. First of all, Jim's tournament. Uh, although it did end kind of anticlimactically, he had some big matchups all the way through. Um, and uh, also had some small tweaks to his list uh, on this outing. Now, of course, very similar list to the one that he ran at T-Shift. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, swapping in the epitome for, uh, I guess, the beloved Convergen Beamer Contemptor Dreadnought, uh, fan favorite, uh, but also 30-some-odd points of reinforcements, um, which uh, I asked him a little bit about, and here's what he said about that. So um, just thinking about uh, Gene Slayer Cults, which is one of my harder matchups, uh, lets me summon a unit of uh, Brimstones for 30. So I can kind of I can add an additional layer of screens to kind of keep them out. Um, so yeah, so it's some tech I'm, well, you're going to know now. It's some tech I'm playing, uh, practicing for Nova. So I know uh, Nick's going, John Lennon's going. You guys probably don't even watch this shit anyways. But, um, you know, they're really good Gene Slayer Cult players. So any little small thing that I can maybe use to my advantage. And um, 
it's it, they're okay in that format. So now, interesting that he's teching up for Gene Steeler cults because he actually wound up in round five playing against Jeff Pandereta. Uh, also playing Gene Steeler cults, a Muscle Beach style list. Did he wind up using his 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 new new trick, his new tech? Oh, 100%. So um, if any of you uh, haven't had a chance to catch game five, um, it is a an ex it's a, it's a masterclass in how to play demons into gene stealer cults. Um, some things that like Jeff Pandorata isn't a name that you hear a lot in uh, the war in the wargaming community, but uh, Jeff was actually essentially the progenitor of the quote unquote muscle beach list. Uh, he was the first one to, to start playing it regularly in events uh, before Nick Donavati uh, kind of did his own um, version of it. Um, and Jeff's is a little more aggressive. He runs three units of aberrants rather than the normal two. Um, he doesn't take any. Uh, he doesn't take very many like tanks or any other secondary uh, Brew Brother squads other than the the normal infantry. And uh, Jeff's a really good player. Uh, Sometimes uh, part of the problem, though, as uh, Jim has noted, as they've played each other uh, four times prior to CCB, so now five in total, um, is that uh, while Jeff is really good technically at the game, oftentimes he doesn't think far enough ahead. Um, to to play out like round three, round four, round five when he's sitting on round one. Um, so uh, casting that game was very exciting for me. Uh, turn one, Jim manages to um, he forces uh, Jeff to go first. He huddle he castles up. Then uh, so Jeff brings out a couple of units, moves things around. On Jim's turn, he does summon that unit of brimstones. It's the first thing he does, and he kind of creates a an extra arc of protection around himself. And uh, it really does. Uh, you can see it. It throws Jeff off. He's not. He hasn't seen really anybody summon anything before. So even just that minor unit uh, giving Jim that extra layer of protection kind of changes Jim's uh, Jeff's whole plan. Um, Going into round two, Jeff uh, tries to pull a shady play and uh, get an aberrant unit um, deep into Jim's lines. But after spending three CP on a stratagem to give him a free six-inch movement after d deep strike and rolling a, a one into a one on that extra movement, um, he, he ends up going all in. And uh, it probably cost him the game. Uh, where originally he was, it looked like he was only going to drop the one unit of aberrants and try to sneak uh, sneak into a hole Jim had left on his uh, his left flank. He ends up dropping all of his aberrants and his uh, Rocksaw acolytes. The Rocksaw acolytes hit that uh, unit of brimstones that uh, Jim has put out, um, and they just get absolutely murdered. But it leaves Jeff in a really precarious position. Jim's able to uh, pull off some sneaky maneuvers and tag all of. Uh, Jeff's abominance with his buffed up plague bear unit and they bounce and do absolutely nothing. It's a, uh, it's a really exciting, probably first, I would say three turns of a game just to see how, how Jim uh, plays that through to, uh, and then after that, it's kind of just a, a mop up where Jeff is, is now unable to do anything because his, his main attack's been neutered. Well, Jim certainly had some, uh, some kind words to say about his regular opponent. So why don't we kick it over to Jim and he can share some thoughts about that matchup versus Jeff my game five against Jeff. He's a good friend of mine. We've played a ton. He's come such a, such a long way as a player. And, uh, it's really, it's really great, you know, to play him every time and see how much he's improved. And, you know, that was a, a very cerebral game. I had to be, you know, there's a lot going on and I just had to make sure that I was patient and did my thing. And it felt like that game was close until it wasn't. Um, my two games today were like by turn two or three, it was 
you know, I knew that where this game was going against Jeff, again, G Circle in general, it's kind of like you never know what's going to happen because things are popping up everywhere. You know, you got aberrants coming in and coming out, that kind of stuff. So I found that game the most kind of cerebral. So Jim had at least one hard game to play on the Sunday, but I'll tell you, in doing my sideline reporting, I saw him battling out some real doozies on his way to the top table on the Saturday. Why don't we kick it over to Jim and he can talk through a couple of those uh, slobber knockers. Yesterday against Jason Sparks, it's my hardest game by far. His list was just brutal. Um, I just pulled that out by two points on turn six, so that was definitely my hardest game. And then my game two against Siren Gibb, also super hard. Kieran, sorry. Kyron, Siren, spell your name different. <laughs> um, so that was really tough too because he had a lot of uh, Eldar Flyers and uh, uh, I almost got tabled in that one too, but you know, it just held the board, so. And with that said, congratulations, Jim. You pulled off quite the win at uh, Capital City Bloodbath. One step closer to greatness. I know that, that, re that this win replaces one of your, your lower standing wins, putting you even further ahead of the pack. And uh, with that being said, you're running out of events that uh, you're going to be able to get some points off of. From what I understand, Jim's next big step is to try and take out the Nova Open. Uh, first, he does have to spend a week uh, at raves in Mexico, from what I understand, but that's uh, a <laughs> normal Jim Vessel uh, procedure. It's how he prepares for any of his events. So let's hear what Jim has to say about his thoughts on the Nova format and uh, where he thinks he's going to land in two weeks' time. Um, I think the Invitational, I'm really interested because, you know, I think, you know, every, every event you go to, there's always, you know, two or three guys that are there that can definitely win. With the Invitational, it's like that field is just a murderer's row. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see how well I do against literally like 16 of the best players in North America, yeah. where there's no easy games, there's no real easy matchups. Everyone's really running like killer lists. Um, and then with Nova, the main tournament, I think, again, the biggest thing is going to be trying to get into that top 16, top 8, um, uh, and see how I do. But uh, there's a lot more upsets, I feel like, in that big tournament because of the extended round. So yeah. you know, people kind of drop out early. Um, but yeah, I'm excited and I ha to be honest, I haven't had enough practice with emissions, but it definitely has a different pace and I think certain things that I'm good at at ITC, which is denying kills, is kind of, there's no such thing as that in Nova, yeah. so I kind of lose that advantage. All right, Jim, well, you can look right ahead to Nova all you want and your fancy invitation and what have you, but we need to dedicate some time to a new thing that we've been doing for at least a couple of weeks now. That's right. It's the overperforming, underperformer of the week. And who would be more fitting for this than half of the matchup on table two? He was r causing a ruckus all weekend with his mono faction custodies. It's the one, it's the only Eric Trock. And why don't we kick it straight to him to go over his list? I was running uh, mono foot custodians with one bike captain. So I had 11 Aqualon custodians with fire pikes. I had a shield captain. I had tra uh, Trajan Valoris. I had three units of uh, custodian guard with storm shields. And then a unit of five and a unit of six Aqualon. And of course the Vexilla Magnifica, which is really the key to the army. The Vexilla Magnifica, that's what, that's what takes it all together. I mean, that allows the whole army to do what it needs to do. Um, minus one to hit. And then um, the Vexilla teleport homer bubble. Uh, this was actually the first, my game five was actually the first time I used that stratagem twice. Uh, and then I did it again in my game six, and it worked amazing. Because the first time in game six, he vected it, which gave me three extra CP, because I then refunded the three with Trajan. So I got six extra CP, which was kind of nice. But then uh, 
Uh, I couldn't use it on turn two and then turn three, did it again, worked out really well. So the standard allows them to come in within six of the standard, whole unit has to be within six, and then outside of three of the enemy instead of outside of nine. Um, now that you can't warp, t you can't come down to warp time or do move anything, it's the best strategy in the game because it's the only thing in the game that allows them to do that, allows any unit to do that. Uh, come in less than nine. Other thing, I mean, Gene Stiller Colt have their shenanigans. You can get plus a lot to charge with a lot of different things, but actually coming in and being able to charge within three inches is just out of this world, especially with a unit that hits as hard as the Aqualon. Now, it's a bit embarrassing for me to say, but not only could I not say Aqualon Terminators for the entire event, I also couldn't figure out how these guys were getting into the, the board because he would deep strike basically half his army every single game, just about. And he'd have nothing on there, and he'd be surrounded, and then suddenly all of his Terminators were there. So I didn't understand this. And clearly, the secret sauce, that beautiful teleport banner. Uh, now, he had pretty much all very much close games, except maybe one against Death Watch. But why don't we kick it over to Eric, and he can tell us a little bit about his, his day two on his uh, on his road to sealing the deal on a miracle finish with Monofaction Custodes. Fourth game was a, a little bit easy. It was against Death Watch. He didn't really know what my army did. Um, it does minus four AP and D3 damage to intercessors. So all the intercessors died pretty quickly. Uh, then I played against Tori. He has Dark Eldar. It was very difficult. Um, really had to use the terrain. There was no uh, enclosed ruins on that table, but used the terrain to my advantage and got some good charges off. Uh, my last game, honestly, the only reason that I had a chance is because by the grace of my opponent, Diogo, he's, uh, we said that there was two ruins um, on the like either side of the table, and we decided that they would be enclosed. They're like kind of um, like silos. And the only reason I had any chance, he was playing eight Eldar Flyers, eight Eldar Flyers, and then seven Venoms. So there was, yeah, no enclosed ruins on the table other than those. He said, yeah, let's play it, and we can actually have a game. And uh, I pulled it out 26 to 25. Very, very tight game the entire time. So unfortunately for me, as a like massive Custodes fan, I was unable to catch most of Eric's games. Um, his lists have fascinated me for a while. This isn't his first go at uh, foot-slogging Custodes. He's been running them for a long time, though this is his first go with uh, th that many Aqualons. In the past, he's used Wardens and Alaris Terminators instead. Um, the amount that I did get to watch of his game versus Diogo it was extremely exciting. Eric's a very cagey player. He he did very well with his positioning. Everything was very uh, was very precise. I can't say enough about that game. But but more more than that, I really cannot say enough about the sportsmanship Diogo Pita showed by letting Eric have those two silos. Because guys, if you even looked at them, it was essentially two overturned coffee mugs, in my opinion, uh, that were getting uh, uh, getting used as um, enclosed ruins on that on that board and the, oh, it was like, it was the proverbial throwing a dog a bone for sure for sure and so big ups to to diogo for for you know making that call letting it happen um because like eric says like there is really not much of a game to be played uh with pure foot custodies against an almost all flyer list that moves as fast as that one does if he doesn't have some place to hide his models yeah, and to me, that's actually the, uh, the the start and the finish of why I think enclosed ruins are good. But we don't need to digress into that. I think we've uh, we've 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 talked enough about our our mono faction hero of the week, and I think actually he's got one last uh, clip about uh, maybe the origin of his Aqualon Terminators, and then we'll kick it off to the bump. I just want to thank. Um 
the late great Jeff Robinson. May he rest in peace uh, for turning me on to the Aqualon. We've been messaging uh, for a while about custodies, and he really like pushed it for me. Decided me to get, uh, kind of convinced me to get them. And um, I just want to say thanks, Jeff, and uh, we miss you. Tournament news. Hey guys, this is Nick Nanavati from Knights of the Game Table Pro, where I teach you how to become a better 40K player. And you're listening to 40K Stat Center. Texas is known for many things. Longhorns, 10-gallon hats, chainsaw massacres. There's a whole lot to do in the state where everything is at its biggest, and this weekend featured the absolute best thing a Southern Wargamer could do with their time. WarGamesCon 11. WarGamesCon is a convention that's been held every year for just over a decade and is the culmination of the prestigious Texas Circuit Championship. For those of you who have not heard of it, the TCC is a series of five Texan GTs and majors. The Alamo GT, the Dallas Open, Warzone Houston, the Sidewinder GT, and WarGamesCon itself. As we understand it, the person with the best three scores from those events become known as the Earl of Austin and is henceforth chauffeured around the state by the other wizened wizard of wargaming, John Cook, all while being regaled with stories about what it was like to be a strip club DJ in the climatic 90s. And we all know there is no greater honor to a Texan than that. A number of players were in the running for best in Texas this year, including Antonio Dino Cedeno, Colin Big Mac McDade, and Matthew the Alabaster Assassin Ali, all of whom had put in serious performances in the lead-up to WGC-11. So let's hear from that rascal-riding, rum-running, rambunctious redneck himself, John Cook, on how the event went down and what he expects for next year. Hi, I'm John Cook, and I run War Games Con in Austin, Texas. We just completed our 11th year. Uh, we have a, we're a multi-event, a multi-tournament event, I should say. Uh, we have uh, a 40K GT. This year we had about 88 players. And we had an AOS GT that had 90-plus players. We had a, a narrative event that had 40 players. We had about 30 players in our um, War Machine events. We had Guild Ball that was 16 or so. We had Kill Team that was 10 or so. And we had a team event that ran about 20 players. So uh, it, was, it was a pretty successful year. We had, uh, we had a nice vendor area. That went went off really good. Uh, our vendors were really happy, uh, so everybody was buying stuff. Uh, we also had streaming going on on both the top table of the AOS event and the 40K uh, GT, so that was really good. And we wrapped up the Texas Championship uh, there and gave out the Texas belt. Matt Ali was the winner this year. He was the winner last year, and uh, the top table – uh, was was something else. The last game was uh, Matt against Colin McDade, who had also won the Texas Championship twice previously. Uh, and Matt came out on top in that event. This year was really cool. We had a uh, we had one young man that was nine years old playing in the GT. He completed all five games. 
he took a hammer, and but he accumulated some points, and uh, he did what he was supposed to do. He killed some stuff, and uh, he he kept his chin up and had a good time. But uh, at nine years old, man, that's really impressive. We also gave out a new award this year that went out to Viet Win. Uh, it's a new award that we named after the Shiner Brothers. Uh, there are a couple local guys, and one of the brothers plays a Shiner Marine Army. Uh, and he, uh, last year, he yelled out in the middle of the tournament, I won't play sober and you can't make me. So that's what we call the award. It's the I won't play sober and you can't make me award. And that went out to Viet Win this year. Next year, we plan to expand. Uh, we're looking to bring in some more vendors. We're looking to maybe create more of a con uh, type event rather than just a, a tournament. Uh, so we'll have more vendors, uh, some classes, more events from uh, from different game systems. And we're looking to go into a larger event, uh, larger uh, venue as well. So, yeah, it's looking good down here in Texas, and uh, we have AC, so don't let the heat scare you off. Ah, a nine-year-old opponent. Finally, someone on my level. Now, this year's War Games Con winner and winner of the whole kitten caboodle for the Texas Circus was, in fact, Matthew Ellie. Now, Matthew had previously won the Dallas Open and Alamo GTs this year with Monocodex Thousand Sons and was, as mentioned, a big favorite to take it all. He would go up against another top contender in Colin McDade in the final act to seal the deal. This time, uh, Matthew would bring something a little bit different to the party from his uh, warp bolter-infused rubric marines. So, for War Games Gone, he brought... An auxiliary support detachment of Ahriman on a disc. A super heavy detachment with three night despoilers, all running two thermal cannons apiece. And then he had a flawless host battalion with the Soul Forged Pack Vigilist detachment. In that, he had three Lord Discordants and three units of 10 Chaos Cultists. A pretty simple list for a pretty simple man. Now, we don't know. Uh, can confirm or deny whether or not Matthew is in fact a simple man because Matthew did not respond to our messages, but he did respond to someone that we know's messages uh, with a, a text post. And now, given that we don't know how to say his last name, how he sounds, or any of the above, we're just going to assume he's from Texas, and I will now give you my best reading of Matthew's tournament report. <clears throat> It was a fun tournament for all my games. All-Star Unit was Lord Discordance as they removed anything that they touched. Favorite moment was getting a death hex off on a Plague Bearer character doom blob. Rolled a 3 plus 1 for the roll and re-rolled it into a 3 plus 6. Pretty much won the game off of that. Overall, the list worked great. While it is an unbeatable by any means, it is easy to play and it can fight into almost anything. Even the hottest counters to this list can still be beaten with a bit of luck in some rolls. Jesus Christ. Did We're going to get so many terrible comments when this thing's done. This is a proud tradition of bad accents on this show, and uh, it looks like Texas is up this week. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. I really don't know what else to say. Um, I guess we should give a big shout out to Eric Tat, who also went undefeated at uh, War Games Con with the uh, Mono Codex Gene Stealer Cults. 
once again, you can check out all the lists and fun via Best Coast Pairings, or you can just uh, check out the top fours if you're interested by going over to 40kstats.com. Why don't we hit that bump? Tournament news. I'm Lawrence Baker. And this is the B-Bone from Tabletop Tactics. You're listening to 40K Stat Center. Siege World 2019 happened last week, and it was a veritable wackadoodle of a show. On top of the 82 players that got together at the Gateway Center just across the river from the Mound City for the 40K Championship, they also managed a small AOS event and a... What? 265,000-point apocalypse battle? 40K Stats correspondent Jason Horn met with the tournament organizer, Doug James, to get more details. My name is Doug James. I'm the head 40K TO for the Siege World 40K tournament. Uh, the Siege World tournament, or well, the actual Siege World event itself has been running for 15 years and started as just an apocalypse game, which was really just a mega battle back in the day. Um, the 40K tournament has been running for, this is, I believe, is our fourth or fifth year. I, I don't even remember anymore. It was like sixth edition or something. Um, and uh, we've just been trying to grow the event and grow the Midwest area events. We've actually, this is the most players that we've had at uh, 82 players. And our local meta is sort of strange. Well, I guess strange isn't the word, but, uh, you know, with, with us, with locals, like everybody always runs just whatever they want to run. But it turns out today it seemed like uh, Eldar Flyers were everywhere. I know everyone's kind of surprised about that. I don't think anybody knew anything about Eldar. I think that's probably a surprise with a little sarcasm there. And then uh, there were plenty of Caladius tanks as well and uh, knights. So pretty much what everybody's been expecting all through uh, this part of the 8th edition curve. There's always things that can run better. There's always things that, you know, went great and we never want to change. But uh, this is our first time in a uh, convention hall. And, you know, there was uh, there were a few challenges, like uh, the convention hall ran out of tables that we needed and we had to change our floor plan a little bit. But really everything went off without a hitch and uh, I'm, I'm actually really impressed with the uh, the venue here the Gateway Center and uh, we'd love to try to come back here next year thanks Doug you're a real gem now in all my years I've learned at least two things never underestimate an ex-navy seal turned Buddhist chef and you cannot take a joke about a 90s action movie too far the first of these was a lesson that seems the folks at uh, Siege World missed out on for while Ben Sherwin was probably never a Navy SEAL, and his philosophical beliefs do not seem to go down any Eastern-influenced road, he does list himself as a chef online and could arguably rock a mean ponytail. He also takes no shit, and he infamously puts Doritos on everything, much like his spirit animal, Steven Seagal. Ben would go on to win the event in one of the cringiest finales we've had in recent years in competitive 40k. We are not going to highlight the negative aspects of that game, as you can see them play out for yourselves by checking out the excellent coverage from the event over at the Iron Halo TV Twitch feed. Instead, we're going to give a big old salute to Ben for handling himself like a champ and taking home victory, even if his list makes us want to throw up about as much as his dog did when it ate the chips and PVC glue off of his flyer bases. Yep, that's right. We've talked about Ben's list before as uh, he's won and uh, top-tabled a number of events with it. So let's kick it over to Ben as he goes over his list and how he did at the event itself. So my list is very simple, and everybody says 
it's kind of cheesy, which is okay. It's Eldar Flyers, but I mean, when you play the meta, you got to play the meta. Uh, so Caladius is going around. Uh, Disco Lords and Daredeo Dreadnoughts are hit on twos. You know, I don't, I don't find a better way of fighting that with the Eldar, which is my favorite faction, uh, except for Black Templars, which aren't going to be a thing. Uh, but overall, just like playing the Eldar, and it's a lot, uh, it's a lot of fun. And the key components in my list are the Night Spinners. People don't overlook those all the time. They shoot out a line of sight and get stuff out of magic boxes. It's huge. Eldar don't have access to a whole lot of line of sight shooting, so running those is pretty important. Uh, but they really need the doom from the Farseer. So, um, for shockingly, at this event, my MVPs were the Night Spinners. They won me at least three of my matchups, picking stuff up out of boxes that are holding objectives. They gave me hold more, which is difficult to get as a flyer list. Because flyers do not hold objectives. Uh, and that's surprising to me because not all the time that's the case. Usually it's the Farseer or the Hemlock. Um, not specifically my Hemlock. He's kind of hit or miss. My hardest, most unique matchup was probably this one that I played with Sam this last game. And it's just the Daredales with their special rule of hitting on twos against flyers, threes if I'm outside of 12 inches. Uh, really makes it difficult with those strength eight butcher cannons that do two damage to, to keep the flyers alive. And his target party was correct in shooting my Crimson Hunters because that's what I kill the Daredales with is the Crimson Hunters. So uh, just that matchup, just trying to dance around the terrain in this matchup was uh, probably the most difficult. Thank you, Ben, for being you. And if... Mike Brandt, uh, who passed a message on uh, to me to deliver to you, uh, he, he, he had something he wanted to say. And he f said in the form of a riddle, he said, what kind of bases are legal at Nova? The answer, nacho bases. You get it? You know, Pete, also in his thing there, he, he referenced his list being cheesy. Val, listen, I'm a father of three. I'm zoning out. So I need you to I need you to think about this. Like, I know the dad joke. I've been there. I've had to deliver it. Uh huh. I don't need it from you. Oh my. I don't. I don't need it. Anyway, guys, uh, that's about it for our coverage from the uh, amazing Siege World 2019. We should give out shoutouts to two other players that did go undefeated at the event. That being Reed Stowe, who ran a chaos multi-faction list using a bunch of plague bears. He had a couple spoil proc scriveners. Number of Horrors and Infernal Rapturous, which you don't see very often. And then that kind of standard Thousand Sun Supreme det uh, Command Detachment. And Richard Windau, who ran a Blood Angels Smash Captain Battalion. And then an Ultramarine Spearhead with uh, the new Repulsors, a couple Eliminator Squads, and uh, Mr. Guliman himself. So congrats, you guys, on putting out such a big, sh uh, good showing at uh, Siege World. Maybe next time you'll get the battle points you need to take it all. Let's cut to that bump. Tournament news. This is Colin. This is Mitch. This is Chuck. And we're from the Best in Faction podcast, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center, where one host has a really strange nickname, and the other one's called The Falcon. It's an old sweet song that keeps Georgia on my mind. And while Ray Charles may not have had eyes for Warhammer, he definitely had ears for music. So it's fitting that this song leads us back down that road for another installment of War Zone Gigabytes, part of the War Zone series of events held just outside of Hot Atlanta, Georgia. 
Last week saw 56 players get together for the third installment of the event in the last year. And who better to give us the lowdown on what happened in the Big Peach than Kelly, Peaches, and Cream Wallace, one of the founding fathers of the Warzone format. My name is Kelly Wallace, and I'm the head judge and one of the tournament organizers for Warzone Atlanta and its sister events, uh, the Warzone, Warzone Gigabyte Series. I'm a part of the General Staff Gaming Club, and we host the Warzone events in Atlanta, and we've uh, put on three of them, or we will have put on, on three of them uh, this year. With Warzone Atlanta selling out year after year, Stephen Cosgrove and I thought it would be a good idea to run a couple smaller events each year using the Warzone format. So we launched Warzone Gigabytes last August. Uh, I've decided to number them like Super Bowls so that uh, people can uh, reference them easily. Uh, we aim to run two of these events each year, roughly in April and August, at our local friendly game store, uh, Gigabytes Cafe in Marietta, Georgia. For this installment of Warzone Gigabytes, Steven decided that he wanted to play, so I was ably assisted by other general staffers, Curtis Calloway, Bobby Azell, and Steven's wife, Jennifer Cosgrove, who does a fantastic job handling all the bookkeeping. For those of you not familiar with the Warzone format, we crowned five champions at each tournament. The Warmaster, based on win-loss, record, and battle points. The Fabricator Artisan, our best appearance champion. The Imperial Envoy, the player selected as his favorite opponent by the people he played. The Emperor's Champion, our newest prize, the player with the highest battle points using a pure faction army using the ITC faction guidelines. And the Sigilite, our player who has the highest hybrid total of battle points, appearance, score, and sportsmanship. I know that Val is uh, very familiar with our format, having been to the last two Warzone Atlanta events, and managed to take home our Imperial Envoy prize to the Frozen North in his first outings. Uh, we play five games with three-hour rounds and 2,000 points using five missions chosen from the Warzone Mission Primer. Players don't know what missions will be played until the lists are submitted, so they're encouraged to bring all comer lists that can play and compete in all the different objectives. Gigabytes is a great store. Uh, it's huge. It has a large number of dedicated tables for miniature gaming, and they could roll out more tabletops so that we can run a full 64-player major event there uh, over the weekend, and they're happy to loan us out the store to do that. They also have a full-service kitchen and cafe. Uh, they have soft drinks. They have beers. And uh, we make sure that in keeping with the Warzone format, uh, Warzone Gigabytes uh, includes lunch on both days, and players order their food when they buy their ticket, and it's brought out just as round one is ending, and people can eat right there in the store and enjoy the company of their fellow gamers. And then we get back to the game. Uh, you know, it saves a lot of time and hassle with uh, the scrambling around to find something to eat and get back to the event. And, uh, and we love it, and we think it's a great benefit we provide to our players. Now, as some people may know, I uh, do attend randomly uh, various Warzone format events as I uh, go up and down the I-75, sometimes stopping in Atlanta. And uh, it's a cool format. I think it's, I've described uh, Warzone as kind of the spiritual successor to, uh, to Adepticon. They've sort of evolved a, an Eternal War-style mission set to a point where I think it's, it, they make for an engaging and interesting approach to missions. Of course, I am a ITC fanboy, and I do like the same sameness of uh, you know ITC and Nova format missions. But similar to ETC missions, if you like that Games Workshop flavor... Uh, definitely give the Warzone mission set a chance. I think uh, I think they're quite good. They work very hard at iterating them throughout the year, and I know I know Kelly's uh, super proud of uh, of the work the general staff has done in creating these things. Uh, so give them a look. They're uh, they're they're quite fun and uh, enjoyable. We need to give a big thanks to our backup host and 40k stats correspondent Tony Pierce here. 
because he was on scene getting lambasted by his opponents and still managed to give us these awesome interviews. So rather than make jokes in poor taste about the players, the locale, and the event itself, we'll let Kelly blow the lead all in one go. The Warzone missions are designed to be played as a set with different elements, including the dreaded relic that forced players to play the mission, not just knock out their opponent, to do well in the event. In our first two events, we sold out to our 64-player capacity, but this time we fell just short of that, with 56 players from around the Southeast coming to Marietta to throw down for one of the top five prizes. It was a fairly well-represented stacked house for people all over the area, including Abusement Park's Chris Blackham, Brohammer's Mark Perry and John Moore, and high-ranking gen- and, and well-known general staffers like Daniel Hester's, Colin Watts, Thomas Bird, Alexis Putt, and Stephen Mitchell. After two days of top play, top-tier play, Mark Perry managed to eke out enough wins and points to emerge as our Warmaster, his second uh, Warzone Gigabytes Warmaster title. Thomas Bird uh, repeated as our overall champion. That's right. Mark, the walking energy drink Perry, took the event in grand fashion, going undefeated in his five games. Now, we'll get to Mark later, but first you want to give a tip of our hats to the other undefeated player at Warzone, Max Shuard. Shuckard. Shuckard. Who ran a slightly modified version of what we come to expect from Tau these days. Yeah, so Max... Shuckard, uh, he ran a Tau Sept Vanguard with Dark Strider, two Riptide Battlesuits, and a Ghost Keel with a Cyclic Ion Raker. He then had a Tau Sept Battalion with two Codra Fireblades, Commander Shadow Sun, a Pittance of Fire Warrior Strike Teams, and six Stealth Battlesuits, as well as three Broadsides. And he topped it off with a Tau Outrider with an Ethereal and three units of uh, 11 and 12 shield drones. Um, like I said, kind of standard Tau fare, though uh, that ghost keel and those stealth suits are something that you don't often see in uh, your kind of your standard ITC meta. Um, I believe Max had something to say about it. Maybe we should cut to a clip from him. Uh, all right, so I'm Max Shukard. I'm from Tennessee. I'm driving Tau today. Uh, the list is pretty standard Tau. Um, Ton of shield drones, uh, two riptides, broadsides, uh, slight tweaks for warzone missions. Uh, I dropped the third tide, which then resulted in me pulling in a ghost keel and stealth suits to handle things like the relic, um, and then just to bring some asymmetry to the list. Uh, so the favorite unit, um, probably as much as there are going to be a whole bunch of non-Tau players who roll their eyes at this one, shield drones. Uh, It's the reason why Tau function right now. Like, period. End of story. It allows them to be an army that actually works in situations where you don't get first turn because you're going to have one to maybe two turns, depending upon how good your counterpunch is, of them chewing through drones, not pulling away your fire support. Second possible MVP might be uh, Shadow Sun, just because of the raw ability to have that second Kayun, because the raw number of times you have to mock Ka that first turn in order to get in position on people who have long range, because tower deceptively short range, it's large. Plus, if you don't have it, just who doesn't love re-rolling all your misses twice? Yeah. Uh, my favorite moment is probably absolutely the moment where sen- uh, I had a Riptide that just decided that Sense of Stone meant something and proceeded to refuse to die with three wounds, making somewhere in the ballpark of about seven, six up, feel no pains. It was it was the thing. I mean, he died directly afterwards, but it, it felt good for that one moment for him to hold on, just be like, no, no, 
maximum value from a six up. Thanks, Max, for saying everything we've heard from every Tau player in the past, while still mixing in the word ghost kill for laughs, and congrats on the solid performance. And now we'll move to the insight we've all been waiting for. Mark, the refrigerator Perry. So Mark brought a pretty, eh, I guess you could call it unconventional chaos list to the Warzone affair. Borderline unconventional? A borderline, yeah, you got it. I mean, some of the normal heavy hitters are in there, but Mark does his own thing. He ran a Chaos Undivided uh, Demons Battalion with a Contorted Epitome and a Corn Demon Prince of Chaos, the Lumberjack of Death, as it were. He also had two units of 10 Brimstones and a big block of 29 Plague Bearers. He then had another Chaos Undivided Detachment with two Poxbringers, a unit of Nurglings, and two squads of 10 Poxwalkers, along with two Foul Blightspawns. And he topped it off with a Supreme Command Detachment with Ahriman, a Demon Prince of Zinch, and another Demon Prince of Zinch. Now I know what you're saying, Val. Mm-hmm. Peter, I did all the math of that in my head, and that's nowhere near 2,000 points. In fact, I believe he's 358 points off. Took the words right out of my mouth. Well, you would not you would not be wrong. This man decided to bring a whole whack-a-ton of summoning, and he had a lot to say about it. Let's cut to some clips from the mailman himself, Mark Perry. Hey, I'm Mark Perry. Uh, I was playing Chaos Soup this weekend at Warzone Gigabits with a mix of Thousand Sons and two Demon Battalions and 358 points of summoning. The strategy for the list is to most of the time just character lock you turn one or turn two, make it where you can't shoot anything, drop the Plague Barriers down turn three, and then turn four and five I summon more Plague Barriers in the later turns where it's really hard to deal from sitting on objectives. And it's really hard to choose secondaries against my list because, yes, I have nine characters, but getting to them is a problem because of how I can screen out. Um, have the two Foul Bite Spawns and the Demon Prince and the Mirror in there for the Eldar Flyer matchup because that can just... That can really destroy my whole strategy if I allow them to. So, favorite unit, honestly, was the summoning mechanic of it because I can summon whatever I need to in a situation, and it was what I needed, and it won me games. Uh, favorite moment in the game, or in, in the tournament period, was when I was versing Chris Blackham, and I summoned Daemonets and 20-man blocks, put them next to the Foul Bite spawn, made sure they're all over six inches in. Therefore, if, even if Gene Zorkult charges me, I go first, because I'm Slanesh, I always kind of charging, I always fight first. And then the Foul Bite spawn says, enemy units do not count as charging. So even if they charge into my blocks with their Acolytes or their Aberrants, I fight first, and which happens, uh, with some aberrants, and I killed six aberrants with 20 daemonets before they even got to swing. Now, you gotta watch out for those demonets preventing you from swinging uh, whenever you can. And of course, Mark defeated Colin, Mr. Electric Watts, on the top tables. Uh, and Colin was running the, uh, the Caladius Imperial uh, multi-faction type list, and uh, we just are so pleased that Mark won. And we were able to have them again on our show. But uh, this thing is uh, already a marathon. And quite frankly, I need to get to this bump. Tournament news. Hello, everyone. This is Dustin from the Stutter Scrub Podcast. And you're listening to the 40K Stat Center. As Stanley Burrell once said, Oh, 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 o
And with that absolute garbage intro, we hop into the front seat of a shiny red superstock Dodge with that little old man from Pasadena, Adam the Latin Gandalf Solace, as he brings us all the hot goss from the Hammer of Wrath GT, a five-round, 49-player ITC GT that took place just two weeks ago. Unfortunately for Adam, the ETC happened at the same time, so we cared only just a tiny little bit and uh, managed to get a hold of him for a bit of info on the event itself and uh, what the heck he's doing over there. Hey everybody, Adam, a.k.a. Latin Gandalf here from TFG Radio. I may not be the world's most well-known 40K judge, but I am one of the judges for the Las Vegas Open, and I also happen to be the TO and judge of Hammer Raft this year. This is the fifth year of Hammer Wrath. Uh, originally, it was created just for a way for our local players to play in a grand tournament without having to travel too far because they weren't allowed of tournaments or grand tournaments around back then. I actually played in the first Hammer Wrath, but I've been helping to run the event since the second one to the current incarnation. This year, as in previous years, the event was held at our local game store. It had 54 people signed up, but 49 people actually showing up to the event for round one. One unique thing about the event is that we give away a LVO champs ticket, but not room and board or travel expenses. But this year we also included the LVO high roller package. We had no real player issues or major player issues. There's always the issues with players during the course of an event like this. But one highlight in the event in general, in case those that haven't read it, is someone was wanting wanted to bring the Imperial Fortress from Forge World, which if you've ever seen it, basically is as big as one of the battle boards and takes up just as much space. Unfortunately, it wasn't allowed because I wasn't aware of it be, until like three days before the event, and it wasn't the actual model. So instead, that same player brought three Vortex uh, missile battery fortifications. <laughs> um, he did win the Wooden Spoon, but I guess it just shows that fortifications just aren't worth taking if you want to try to win. I know a big thing this year has been about the terrain. I, I do have to admit the terrain was not at least what I would like it, but that's more of a store issue than an event issue, and it's common with this store, which is probably one of the reasons we'll probably be moving the event next year. So that's a quick recap of the Hammer Wrath. If you want a full recap, you can always listen to the podcast, TFG Radio, or you can just catch me at LVO, and I'll give you the full story. Ah, uh, yes. TFG Radio, that paragon of insightful 40K news. And, you know, I think they've lost a few steps lately. I mean, Adam is the through line, the one consistent element keeping it together. But really, TFG hasn't sung since the producer, and I believe Travis left. Well, to get back on track and talk a little bit more about the actual event itself, um, as Adam said, uh, they managed to get 49 players uh, to pack it into Pasadena uh, for Hammer of Wrath this year. Um, and after five long, grueling rounds, uh, the final matchup, the top table, would be uh, the reigning Slaughterfest champion Richard Cozart versus Carlos, the King of Custodes, Kaiser. We managed to catch up with uh, Richard uh, to get his thoughts, uh, but all he said was, F- <laughs> Is that what he said? 
Uh, Richard was running uh, essentially the exact same list that he had brought to Slaughterfest, while Carlos brought something just a little bit different. Uh, Carlos is a known Adeptus Custodes player at BAO. He brought uh, Bike Spam and tried to make it work, getting as far as the top eight before losing out to uh, Jeff and Control Robinson in about three minutes in, in their quarterfinal game. Um, so he changed it up. At Hamburg of Wrath, he would run Captain General Trajan Valoris, five Aqu- Aqualon Custodians, a Vexillus Praetor with the Vexilla Magnifica, two of the Palace Grav Attack Tanks, three Caladius Grav Attack Tanks, and the big boy himself, the Orion Assault Dropship. Oh, seriously? Oh, 100%. He brought out that $400 super heavy a piece of machinery and i love it i think that's really cool i mean i don't like that when the um experimental rules first came out everyone was like well three of them but i i think it's cool that someone's finally actually splashing it in there yeah we've we've seen it a few times bao had uh, colin coons have a pretty decent record running as a solo orion although when i spoke to him there he had said that he was still trying to work out the bugs on just how aggressive he needed to be with it um we later learned that the the amount of aggression you needed was zero since he's uh, since switched to chaos space marines um (laughs) and richard martin has been has been doing extremely well running triple orion although that was mostly in team tournament play um and in prep for atc he he managed to get a couple top tables and uh, i believe when broheimer came in second he scored a ton of points uh and it's put him as a number one custodies right now so uh big kudos to him uh on the carlos side he did beat uh, richard at 31 to 20 we were unable to uh, get any voice clips from carlos i'm not sh- quite sure if he reads anything on social media um he didn't even uh, respond to my friend request until really late in the game he may have thought i was just yet another one of those hot sexy babes from russia uh looking to send some kind of porn ad to him and he wouldn't have been wrong no he would have he would have been half right Tournament news. Hi guys, I'm Manny Chima, one of the founders of Glasshammer Gaming and the head coach for the Glasshammer list writing and coaching service. And you're listening to the 40k Stat Center. And now for the last of our full coverage events today, we have the London Open, a prelude to the London GT later this year. The London Open was to be a feature major last week using the terrain and tables one could expect to see at the main event next month. Initially open to 100 players and taking place in the London Megastore, it was unfortunate that the coinciding ETC would really take a chunk out of the expected play group. Still, even with that lofty competition, 32 players were able to get together, toss dice, and swear to their heart's content. We reached out to the eventual winner of the event, Bethany the Engine Seer Taylor, who gave us the lowdown. Um, so a bit about me is I've been on and off sort of playing 40k for the last two years, um, sort of jumped onto the ITC circuit this February, just being after the LVO. Um, I've been playing, as I say, on and off, um, really enjoyed the game, really, really fun. The event itself was an ITC format. It was held at Darksphere Games in London. Um, the, there was some slight differences. Uh, one of those was basically missions one through five with fixed deployment maps and instead of rolling to see who goes first and second for choosing sides etc 
there was one roll off and that person went first the other one went second with no seizing um so yeah it was really good so definitely definitely a great event so as we stated when we blew the lead just two minutes ago, Bethany came out on top against some stiff competition. She ran a mono-ad mech list, further cementing her current lead atop the ITC Best in Faction standings and taking her place as the current head of the Mars Fabricatorium. That's what they call it, right? Yeah, that's close enough. Sure. So let's take a quick second and go over Bethany's list. Val, do you happen to have that up? Oh yeah, absolutely I do. Old Bethany Taylor was rocking a super heavy auxiliary detachment house crest with the uh, Night Crusader, Storm Spear Rocket Pod, Thermal Cannon, Avenger Gatling Cannon, Heavy Flamer. Um, and then we have a battalion of Martians, the HQ, of course, the Baller Serious Call, hanging out with a Tech Priest Manipulus with his Transonic Cannon, who actually was the Warlord. And then in the troop slot, we've got a lot going on here. We've got uh, a unit of Cataphon Breachers. There are four of them with heavy arc rifles. And There's there... actually five of them. She has 20 in the list. Well, there's five units, dickwad. But oh, there's four in the unit. Now, I was just about... But no, no. No, no. Now the listeners know there are four times five units of Cataphon Breachers with the heavy arc rifle and arc claw. And then she has another battalion detachment, this time switching up to Stygies or Stygies or what have you. Number eight, two Tech Priest Engine Seers leading that one. In the troop slot, we've got uh, a couple units of uh, Skitari Rangers uh, rocking the Transuranic Arcabooses, which screwed me over real hard at the LVO, which I'll always say every time I read that stupid word. Uh, there are four units of that. And then under Fast Attack, we've got the Iron Strider Balistari. Uh, with uh, twin Cognus autocannon, there are five of those. Yep. Eight sniper rifles, five of the Iron Striders, and 20 Cataphron Breachers. It's a pretty intense list. Um, now, none of these I, are Vigilist attachments either. Well, from what I see here, now, I'm not going to say whether or not she actually used them. It's it's very common, um, even though it is incorrect to not put them in the list. Mm. I don't believe at any point that she mentions that she did use the Vigilist attachments when she when we, uh, when we talked to her. Um, but that being said, it's not to say, like, they don't exist um, in her list. Um, but, yeah, Bethany's list is extremely devastating. It's got a lot of punch. Um, and I would do it really no justice if I tried to explain it. So how about we cut to, a few, like, the plethora of clips we've gotten from her on exactly how this list works and and uh what it did for her at the event and if there's something i can get behind peter it's no justice for you um the secret also the main strategy to my list was it's a well-oiled machine i wanted it to be very toolboxy i wanted it to be able to take on a variety of different lists and you can see that throughout the different units that i take so i have eight sniper rifles for characters and killing support units um i also have the 20 breaches these are great with stuff like call for four rerolls against like alley top flyers or knights or anything because they get the d6 damage against vehicles i've also got the iron striders these basically um benefit with the plus two to hit stratagem and they're able to take on obviously sort of light armor units but also able to clearing mass hordes thanks to cognis overwatch and it's just 20 shots a turn hitting on twos rerolling ones which is awesome 
Um, in terms of sort of the MVP of my army, I think, I don't think there's a specific unit that stands out, but if I had to choose, I'd probably say it's my mana plus, first of all, um, because of the waller trade I give him and the relic, and obviously what he provides to the army, so he can basically bolster your weapons or movement, means your movement is increased by an inch, same for your charges, and also it means all your weapons ranges from 24 onwards um, have a extra 6 inches to their buff, which is fantastic, meaning that the breaches were actually a 40-inch threat range, or 48-inch threat range, rather. And this just meant, in general, it was just so perfect. And basically, in terms of what I took for his Warlord trait, um, which is more or less always Prime Hermeticon, what this provides for the army is the breaches now essentially have a pseudo full reroll in combat, meaning it just increases their effectiveness, their capability, what they can do. Um, and essentially, I treat my breaches as a counter-charge unit, as a mass, and that usually clears out with big hordes and stuff. Um, it also means they are a lot better when it comes to fighting knights in combat, because they have the art claws, which are d3 damage each, um, and they can be strength 6 or strength 7. And because they're also strength 7, it makes them great for taking on t7 tanks, and also like stuff like t6 uh, discordants or demon princes. They're very, very strong. Um, I think, and I forgot to mention it, is another MVP for my list was my Crass Crusader. The Crass Crusader was a fantastic choice. Um, he just provided so much utility, and I think that was just based around the relics and the waller traits I could give him. So obviously in my first round matchup, I was against Necron Vehicles, so I took Heads as Mark, and First Knight as his waller trait. In my Gene Steel Cult match, I took him with the 5-up Sanctuary involved. And then I would then take the plus one attack in combat because I'm going to be in combat a lot with Colt. And then obviously uh, from round three, four, five, I was against lots of minus two weapons. So what I took was the two plus save. And then I would obviously put Shroud Song on him. And that would mean that he has a one up save from shooting attacks. And he would always take the first knight. And because it was such a hench knight i suppose we'll go with um this would force my opponent to shoot things like their avenger gatling cannons into breaches and an avenger gatling cannon on averages will kill one breacher and do two damage to another this means it takes three crusaders to effectively kill a unit of breaches with just avenger gatling cannons and that means they're not shooting those Gatlers at my knight. So my knight's able to carry on doing his work. He's able to keep shooting his Storm Spear rocket pods. He's able to shoot his Thermal Lance at key targets. And obviously the Gatler to clear hordes. And obviously the Breaches are still quite mobile. And they're still really tough to crack. Because of Cole, you can keep giving everyone the Shroud Song they need. Manipulating your Canticle rolls, etc. Um, my most difficult matchup at the event um so it was round two and believe it or not it was against my one of my good friends danny everson he's a fantastic player really lovely honestly he's just so nice um he was playing gene steel cult gene steel cult is once again one of those armies that the book just has everything you can do so much of it there's so much variety and combination 
Um, but yeah, so the matchups are really difficult because you have to screen effectively. You have to basically make sure everything's in the right place and Colt is just on it like a machine. It's so such a good army. Um, essentially, the turning point in that game um, was I screened out effectively. Basically, he lost 10 aberrants turn 1 because he exposed them a little bit. He then hid his Patriarch. I was then able to kill a couple of units. So we basically, nobody got kill more for turn 2. However, in turn 2, obviously, some of his rock saws appeared. I did give my Crass Crusader the uh, Sanctuary Invon. So this baited out his Vect when I tried to rotate and have a 4-up Invon in combat. Um, and basically... Um, he wrapped my chickens, but what happened was, is as I was saying earlier about the breaches with the Manipolis, they were able to rush in and they managed to wipe out 33 or 32 of the 35 acolytes that appeared. Um, after that, he was sort of at a bit of a loss. Um, he did manage to keep my um, chickens wrapped, so obviously I couldn't shoot the acolytes that were in combat, and he obviously brought in his next 10 aberrants, so those 10 aberrants did make a successful charge, killing three breaches on my left flank, however he was unable to wrap, and what happened was is the acolytes that were wrapping my chickens died in combat to the chickens, because they're not too bad in combat themselves, they have two attacks each, etc. So what happened was I was able to free the chickens, and then I was able to start shooting the aberrants that appeared. Um, he started to unfortunately take from the middle. And what that meant was is during his next turn when he basically got back into coherency. He tried to make a 7 inch charge. He was unfortunately uh, in the crater. And this resulted in a minus 2 charge. And that's pretty much what won me the game. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a great game overall. Like I say, I think that's everything. Um... Nothing crazy I want to mention. I think the Stygies Battalion was great. It got untouched pretty much every game. The Mars Battalion did its job. It took out key pieces that threatened my knight. And they also kept moving up and controlling the board, forcing my opponent into positions they probably didn't want to be in. And they also acted as that counter charge unit. Um, the events are saying the event itself, fantastic, well run, probably one of the smoothest events I've ever been to. Um, the terrain was on point, which is fantastic. Um, it's obviously given me a lot more insight to what to expect at the LGT and what kind of list I'm going to bring. I have some things in the pipeline. I'm going to give them a few tests out at some one-day events, and then I'll be ready to submit my list. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time, and, uh, yeah, cheers. Hell yeah, Beth. Thank you for that deep analysis of uh, both your unique list here. And uh, and also of that uh, triumphant win. And we're not by any means the experts here. Um, but as far as I know, this might be the first female 40K GT win in, in 40K history. Certainly ITC competition. I, I don't think I've heard of it before. I think you're right, Val. I mean, I'm not going to try to step over bounds, having only really started myself getting into the, the ITC side of things in the last uh, couple of years. Um, but even if she didn't, like someone get this woman on your podcast. I know Salty John interviewed her recently about her current uh, uh, cult mechanicus uh, best in faction performances. Mm. But seriously, just those uh, eight minutes or so of her chatting up the list, going through her strategies – 
there's so much good information there. And like, that's just like barely the tip of the iceberg um, uh, when it comes to like her technical expertise. And keep in mind at the beginning, she opened up by saying she's really only been playing competitive 40K for about six months. Absolutely outstanding. Congratulations to Bethany. Tournament news. Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Murphy from Forge the Narrative, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. Well, Peter, I think it's time we bring this kitty cat home uh, and maybe just do a quick round of shout outs to all of our uh, smaller GT winners in the last two weeks that unfortunately we just can't cram into this bloated corpse of an episode. Yes, just like the corpse emperor himself sitting on that false throne. We, too, have a few things we need to talk about. First off, let's shout out the Castle Assault 40K GT that happened in Australia last weekend. They had 38 players show up, and Lee Abbey with Gene Steeler Colts took the win. After Second that, off, oh, you do it. Yeah, of course I will. After that, we had <laughs> Wars on the Shore, 30 players, ITC format, the winner, the one, the only, TJ Lanigan with Multifaction Chaos. And lastly, we have Vulcan Summer Barbecue, which was a 28-player ITC event, won by Peter Akey with Multifaction Eldari. I spoke to Peter uh, briefly about the list, and uh, he just wanted to say that he loved his little tanky poos that sh uh, shoot through terrain, whatever they're called. No one cares because it's Eldar. Night Spinners? Yeah, you're right. I guess you do care. Wow, I got one, maybe. All right, well, it, without further ado, I just got to ask you, man. Uh, you got anything else to say? Bye bye. This has been 40K Stat Center, a presentation of the Frontline Gaming Podcast Network. Like what we do? Subscribe to and rate us on YouTube and wherever podcasts can be found. Join the conversation. Follow 40K Stat Center on Facebook. You can also support the show directly by joining the Chapter Tactics Patreon and competitive 40K in general via the ITC Patreon or by grabbing a subscription to BCP. BCP.